then the pursuit became like actually like a very literal one because I was actually chasing Benedict Cumberbatch around this hotel. Welcome to We Can't Print This. It's a podcast that tells you the story you don't know behind the story you do. My name is Eden Dawn. <laughs> My name is Fiona McCann. You're silly today. So every week we interview a writer of some kind or another about the stories behind their stories. And if you like it, you have fun today, you could text us to a friend or you could sign up and support us on patreon.com slash we can't print this. Yeah, and it's not a hypothetical. You're going to love it. You're going to love, love it. it. Because on this week's episode, we have the one, the only, Zach Dundas. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Zach. He's the managing editor for the gorgeous Wildsome Travel Guidebooks. He's the author of the critically lauded The Great Detective, The Amazing Rise and Immortal Life of Sherlock Holmes, and also The Renegade Sportsman. And he's the co-host of the award-winning and amazing scintillating Death in the West podcast. But most importantly of all, the most important thing, pre-Wild Sam, he was the editor-in-chief at Portland Monthly Magazine for five years, where he was our boss. Our boss. Our boss, who we fondly referred to as Daddy Z. As Daddy Z. And we were not um, all reported to HR. Somehow it was okay. So, So, Daddy, so, (laughs) so, so Fiona, as you know, Daddy Z, DZ, as we call him for short, DZ came and talked to us about chasing an interview. And I think we should talk about chasing interviews. Yes, which is uh, part and parcel of being a journalist, to be honest. Yes, it is. Turns out not everyone wants to talk to you. I mean, if you can even get to them. So can I tell you my biggest flop? Yes, you can. Okay, so a few years ago, Kathleen Hanna was coming to town. Kathleen Hanna, icon, Riot Girl movement, Bikini Kill, La Tigra, born in Portland. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. She was coming to town. um, She's our homegirl. She's from here. Yeah, she was born here. um, From... But she wasn't playing a show. She was doing a lecture circuit. Maybe it was when her documentary came out. I can't remember. But so she had a lecture agent who was not good. Who was not good. And I would like to preface this and say, (laughs) I still love Kathleen Hanna. I'm sure she has no idea about this story whatsoever. But the dude who was her lecture agent was not good because I chased him forever because I wanted to write about the show and do an interview with her and promote the show, which again, this is normally what a lecture agent would like a journalist to do to help you sell tickets for the show. Don't they want that? I chased him forever before he finally responded to me and told me I had to be prepared for a 72-hour window, of which in that 72 hours to sit by the phone where Kathleen might call me for 15 minutes. Wow. This is like extreme cable guy situation. For 72 hours. And I did not, I really thought he was exaggerating. And I was like, I had to kind of keep pushing back. And finally I was like, did you mean 72 minutes? What about (laughs) if I'm driving? What about if I am in the shower? What about if I am sleeping? And he just kind of was like, if you care about this interview, you'll not do any of those things. This person is not okay. That's now not so the norm. Wild. So obviously I could not stay awake for 72 hours and he really like wouldn't relent. And so I said, can I get on the press list for the show and I will come and review the show. Yeah. And also hopefully sometimes if you go to a show, as you know, you get a few minutes with the person before or after I might get a quote and be able to still write a piece about it. Again, trying to do Kathleen. A solid, trying to do right by Kathleen. Trying to do right by Kathleen. And he 
treated me like I was a con woman, like a full grifter. He was like, I've never heard of a press release or press list. I've never heard of a press list. I don't know what you're trying to pull. Hey, lady with your invented press list. Hey, lady who is an editor, a like senior editor at the biggest magazine in the state. Who do you think you are? Press lists are a common thing. Journalists are poor. We yeah. get into shows because we, if we had to pay for all of the tickets, we would never be able to go to all of them. They Even publication don't we write about them that's yeah that's the, common in publications across the board to have a press list and and let me just say not only on the record are press lists a real thing and a very normal expectation as yes. a journalist but 72 hour interview windows they're not they are not no you said i have interviewed many a famous person i, I have interviewed congresswomen i have interviewed senators you get a time window and somebody might be a few minutes late but they're like Here's the time interview you're coming at. Boom, bam, boom. That's what it. is a 72 hour? What? Who is this dude? I don't know. I hope she fired him. So that was a flop. I did not get any kind of interview whatsoever. Oh, and I bet she'd be mortified. I bet if she if she's listening to this right now, she's like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to call Eden Dawn and apologize. I'm sure that's not the case. But still, Kathleen, I think you're great. We think you're great. And this dude... If you're listening, I need you to know the press lists for shows are normal. And I'm not a grifter. Not She's for that, not a anyways. a grifter and 72-hour windows are like kind of a little bit extreme. But you know it's hard if you – that's not somebody I knew. Whereas, like, people in town, if it was a manager for a club or something you have a relationship with, and if you don't have that, it becomes a lot harder. Yeah. I mean, Eden, you know I am the queen of magical thinking when it comes to interviews. I always think it's going to work out great. I'm just going to call up. Joe Biden right now. He's going to come on our podcast. He's going to pick up the phone. I mean, he's on the next episode of We Can't Print This. It's going to be great. And so it doesn't always work out. But I think one of the things that's most difficult when you're trying to get in touch with somebody who is in the public eye is figuring out, like, who's the person you need to talk to to get there. Yep. It does make me wonder if this dude even was the person. <laughs> like that's, that's interesting. Plot twist. <laughs> Plot twist. Because I think that, you know, often you're like, okay, I really need to talk to this person in this movie. So I have to write to the production company through their website with their, to the info at productioncompany.com or whatever the email address is. I mean, that almost never works because you, but then I feel like this is where newsrooms come in handy and why I loved being in a newsroom. Because all you had to do was like pop up from your little cubicle and go, uh, does anyone here have any connection to Kathleen Hanna? And like, Sure enough, some grizzled fell in the corner. Like yeah, long time yeah. hack would be like, Kathleen Hannah, now hold on. Scroll through the phone. Yeah, now you need to talk to Jack. Totally. Jack's your you man for Jack. Kathleen. <laughs> Jack will put you right. And you'd always have, that's why journalists' Rolodexes or their contact lists or their yeah. address books were always so valuable because you'd be in there going, oh, Simon Cowell, okay, grand. Oh, yeah, Victoria Beckham, I'll call her. She'll put me right. You know, the, all of these numbers would be in there and you'd know who to talk to to get to Kathleen Hanna. And if you had somebody like this dude in your way, some other journalist be able to go, oh, no, don't talk to him. Don't talk to him. That don't dude doesn't actually know what he's doing. Never even heard of a press list. Never heard of a press list. Don't <laughs> mind him. You need to talk to Michelle Obama. Here's her number. Um, <laughs> you need to talk to, to get to Kathleen Hanna, you need to talk to Michelle Obama. Here's her number. Uh, we should get on with it and let Zach tell us his story about trying to chase an interview of which he also had to be a, a dogged reporter. Dogged, intrepid, chasing Benedict. 
We're just going to dive in, but we will begin by telling the world that we call you Daddy Z still. So that everyone. <laughs> so is. appropriate. So appropriate. I just want to point out that in our studio, uh, Zach Dundas is matching our logo, which I thought was very considerate of him. I was really considerate. Yeah. You plan ahead and you get some you know, un- unforeseen successes. Now nobody knows if you're wearing hot pink or the kind of purple. Stripes. Um, Zachary yes, Bartholomew Eden. Dundas. <laughs> Here Eden today, Sylvester Dawn. <laughs> I would make a beautiful Sylvester. Thank you so much. What is the story behind the story? You have come into our realm to tell us today. Well, by way of introduction, I would say that in 2015, I published a book called The Great Detective. Yes, you did. It is a nonfiction book about a fictional character. It is, I guess, a handy way to describe it might be it is a biography of Sherlock Holmes as a cultural phenomenon, right? So it is a book about Sherlock Holmes, the Victorian detective character, but as that character has been manifested in pop culture across whatever, 130 For years. For years. So it's a So it's basically a reported book about this not this fake character that has this real world history of, you know, movies and TV shows and and just Animated. all detective oh, yeah. work. He yeah, is right. basically the, isn't right. he like the cornerstone of everything that's Scotland Yard? I don't know. And yeah. <laughs> very importantly, currently at my house, I am working on a Sherlock Holmes murder mystery jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, see, there you so, go. From I the, mean, I thought you were going to say Sherlock Holmes was currently at your house. He <laughs> might be. Ever, people come by. You know. I definitely met some people while I was working on this book who probably did think that Sherlock Holmes was at their house. Oh, yeah. no. So, yeah. I they're, believe they're nice you. People. They're charming people. I believe them. Um, but you were working on this book for some time because we, you and I began working together in 2010, and I feel like you were talking about Sherlock yeah. Holmes then. Yeah, so the, the origin story of the book, which kind of leads naturally into the, into the tale that I have come here to tell, is that... <laughs> as as a wee child in the wilds of Montana, no, as, as so a I, young lad, as a young lad, I grew up in Montana, and uh, as a sort of nerdy bookish child, had a many different enthusiasms over the years. But Sherlock Holmes was kind of the big one that was kind of my chief geek interest from the time I was about eleven onward, essentially. Like, so of course these things wax and wane as you grow up, but. I was always a big Sherlock Holmes fan and geek on some level, somewhere in my being that was key and core. Is and there is there a word for Sherlock? Are they Holmesians oh, or they Sherlockians? Are, okay, they are both. Oh, okay. Oh, I you, just wondered. If Good you are, Swifties. If you are a, uh, Very, a Brit, uh, if you are of British or Irish extraction, you most likely or even fully Irish, for example, you most likely <laughs> identify as a Holmesian. Is that how you I most likely do. <laughs> do you? And from you are, here on in. And, and if you're from anywhere that might be considered New World, the United States, even Japan, where there's a fairly substantial Sherlock Holmes subculture, you would most likely self-identify as a Sherlockian. Do wow. they really say Homesian, though? They don't say Homesian? Some do. Some do. Not my yeah. people. Nah. The regional divide. This is yeah. putting Fiona and I on opposite sides of the battle. So, anyway, I was a big Sherlock Holmes nerd all growing up. Around 2010, about the time that I started to work at Portland Monthly, mm-hmm. the the career that brought me across both of your paths. Mm-hmm. Um, I you dragged s- us across your paths, if I recall. We were conjoined and betwixt. 
The twist. <laughs> so, <laughs> she's the right are you trying to speak Sherlockian? <laughs> yeah, the jigsaw puzzle it's has going been great. influencing me. <laughs> so, I it was a it was around that time that the um, Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law Sherlock Holmes yes, movies. Yes, I hit. recall that. Super. And I, I was, even I, saw that in the cinema. Yeah, and I was looking at that, and I was thinking, huh, there's something interesting here. I mean, this character keeps getting revived every generation, approximately. There's a whole wave of movies and TV yeah. shows. And, this, that, and the other about this one character that was invented by a dude, Arthur Conan Doyle, back in the 1880s mm-hmm. and has kind of persisted in popular culture ever since. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of an interesting story, potentially. Uh, I also knew about the existence of these fan groups and subcultures that we just talked about. And like, okay, well, so there's some reporting that can be done, some like real world interviewing. You love um, a bit of real world interview. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I'm Woodward and Bernstein. You love an in internet subculture. Yeah, You're Sherlockian and Homesian. I did. So I wrote a book proposal um, around that time. I don't know, somewhere in there. Um, I sold the book in 2012. Okay. Um, to Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and started working on it around then. Um, so it was... The reporting happened in 2013, 2014-ish, and the writing as well, and then it came out in 2015. So I hatched this concept. I started working on it, and almost simultaneously, this BBC show, Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, became a much bigger pop cultural phenomenon than the Robert Downey Jr. movies, for example. Really kind of the first big Sherlock Holmes pop culture hit in our time. In like 50 years. That was like where you could say like, oh, this is kind of big. Like for a time, Sherlock was the number one show in the UK. It was a huge hit for PBS and kind of like revived the Masterpiece Theater franchise. or along- totally made his career as well, yeah, Benedict. And, and, and is it Murder, She Wrote style where every episode there's a new murder and he is solving it with his intellect and nothing else? Essentially, yeah. He's they kind of a savant. Yeah, isn't he they this? did. The creators of the show, who I interviewed for the book as well, Mark Gaddis and Stephen Moffat, uh, did this kind of brilliant thing where they took the original 1880s Sherlock Holmes short stories and turned them into scripts for very modern, kind of almost like techno thrillery mystery stories. A little bit stories. of steampunk. Little yeah, little. yeah. They and they made they made Benedict Cumberbatch super fashionable and hot, and then oh. know, they just yeah. made him hot. He was unhot, clearly. And, <laughs> yeah. And Martin Freeman is super charming, Watson, but also kind of like a man of action. The book talks about tons of different stuff related to Sherlock Holmes. It talks a lot about the original author Arthur Conan Doyle and his life. It talks about what a big sort of cultural hit the character was when it was first published in the 1880s and 90s. All that stuff. But all along, I knew. It was like, okay, I've got to get Benedict in this book. you got to get Benedict. Like It was mission maybe 1.5. It's like, first, write the book. Second of all, <laughs> make sure Benedict Cumberbatch's cheekbones are in this book somewhere. Thirdly, Except, count the money raining upon That's me. Yeah, right. Yeah, it'll be a huge hit if Benedict Cumberbatch is in the book. That turned out not to be true. But anyway, um, so I immediately did what any good reporter would do and tried to figure out like well how do you get to benedict cumberbatch mm-hmm. sherlock would know sherlock would know i do not because i'm not much of an entertainment reporter um so as i recall the first thing i did was figure out what production company in the united kingdom was making this tv series like and and that seems like a pretty logical way to go like yeah step one give him a ring so i gave him a ring dropped him an email 
And I'm sure they got back to you straight away. It was even worse because Fiona might relate to what I'm talking about here. Like if you call someone in England and you get a cold shoulder from them, it's the coldest cold shoulder. Oh my God. Like, it is ice. Do you know how, like, in America, like, even if you have no intention of helping somebody out, you're going to be, like, super chipper and yeah. polite to them. Like, oh, hey. Oh, yeah, it's great to talk to you. Uh, it was really nice to meet. Uh, let me talk to Steven and see what he can do. Circle back. Yeah, we'll circle we'll back. Circle back, yeah. Circle mm, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you have a great day. Yeah, have a wonderful day. There's none of that... No, there really isn't. They just had you questioning all of your life choices. It was, there was, I, I, in my memory at least, and I'm sure this is pretty close to true, there were at least half a dozen phone calls where I was trying to explain myself to some sort of intermediary who stood between me and the people who could make any sort of decisions about me interviewing anyone involved in the show. And And they treat you like they're scraping you off the bottom of their shoe. Really awful. I mean, it was, yeah, it was like, you're writing a book. (laughs) About Sherlock Holmes. Like, and I'm like, you're making a fucking TV show about him, so like, aren't we friends here? Uh, but no, no. You can feel them covering the receiver and go, this geezer's writing a book. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was a lot of that. I mean, and, you know, for months on end, I'm doing other reporting about other parts of the book. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I'm kind of trying to, and I, meanwhile, I'm working at Portland Monthly Magazine. And doing this I mean, all when you're supposed to be on the clock, being our editor. <laughs> yeah, I'm edit- I've become co-editor-in-chief with Rachel Ritchie at around that same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know there's like one, if you were like working for a British tabloid, you would have the number oh, of yeah, the guy sure. that you yeah, need yeah, to, yeah, or yeah, the girl yeah. you need to talk yeah. to. Yeah, I didn't have any institutional standing to be able to say like, hey, I'm working on this story for the New York Times. You want to like uh, hook me up? So, but you no. also want, you know, there's somebody, there's like, there's the one person whose number you have to have. There's always that person in the yeah, newsroom. Right. Like, oh, right. you need to talk to Louie. Yeah. Go um, call Louie. So, you know, I'm working on this book basically between like the hours of 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. I've got a newborn. It's like a pretty scrambled time God, in my brain. So I have these like long to-do lists that are like, and, it, and you know, I'll get through about two thirds of it and I'll have to make a new list that has the fresh stuff that's just come onto my radar and I'll move the old stuff that isn't done yet over. And every time it's like Benedict Cumberbatch is like at the top of the He keeps moving over. Benedict. one list to another. And uh, and I did actually finally kind of like wave the white flag in my own brain at some point where I was like, oh, you know, this is not going to happen. Like, um, Also, is that the reason you had to get up at five every morning? Because you had to catch... No, I mean, it was handy whenever I had to call someone in England, which, given the subject matter, happened a lot. But it was more like that was the time that I had to work on work. the book. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, so I would get up in the morning, I would write for an hour, and then I would go about the rest of my day for the most part. And then God. reporting and stuff had to kind of fit in around around that. I, did, I took some time off to go to England for a week. Um, that was another time where I was making a bunch of calls while I was in England, thinking like... Just asking anyone you Pro- saw who proximity. had proximity. No, you yes, know they'll hear that. You, you know. have good cheekbones. Do you know Benedict? I was trying the BBC. I was yeah. trying uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's manager separately from the production company, and getting a similarly like zero to nil to cold responses. Maybe they were being friendly though. Sometimes it's a cultural thing. Yeah, the cold response can yeah. be the equivalent of "You have a great day." That's who can true. say? That's true. Um, and so this, you know, so this rigmarole with Benedict kept going on throughout the course of the book. And it was getting pretty late in the whole saga of creating this thing when I got 
wind of the fact that there was going to be a big television press event in Los Angeles, which I had never heard of before, but apparently is a ritual of the industry where for two weeks every year, I don't know if this is still true post-COVID, but at the time, for two weeks every year, they basically take all of television, all the networks, all the cables, every, everyone, and impound them at a hotel in Los Angeles. Is that the upfront? I don't know if that's what they call it. It was called the Television Critics of America. Something, something. Something. Like this, okay. yeah, and so I, I like that I'm like. Are you talking about the upfront? Are you talking man? about the upfronts? Oh, I mean, everybody God. knows this is when you all get together. And this is going to be the shortest episode ever. <laughs> once we edit out all the dumb stuff he says. Um, <laughs> the uh, um, so I'm already and, envisaging Benedict Cumberbatch as a great white whale in this whole journey. It felt like that Benedict a lot of the time. Benedict is your Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah. He was. He's my skinny, skinny, lanky Moby Dick. Mm, immediately we're gonna cut at moby (laughs) regret all of this yep so so (laughs) so this created a new kind of repertorial opportunity where i was like oh okay well this whole thing like media is invited to this and this so it's an entry point and i i investigated a little further pbs had a whole like two-day slot that was theirs great great and in america you are media that's right and I kind of felt like, okay, I bet the PBS slot isn't like the most sought after press credential. You wouldn't right? say it would you be know, number one. Like, all due respect to Big Bird, like who's, you know, which members of the press are like, oh yeah, I definitely need to be on the PBS You're list. like shoving grannies <laughs> out of the way to get yeah. there. <laughs> um, but because Sherlock and Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, they were bringing the whole cast. They were, <sighs> they, it was, you know, it was, like, it was a bit of a, I, I had to kind of like, I had to jump through a couple of hoops to get the credential. I think I ended up going through WGBH in Boston nice. to get the credential, which is the American production partner on the series. Oh and God, so, that's all such an endless slog. Well, I it? was thinking about, it, it's like, if, if there's any lesson to be gleaned for writers out there in Writerland, it's kind of like, sometimes you just have to, keep turning over stones because in the end like the solution to my problem wasn't all that complicated i just had to like wait for the right time yeah wait for the right time and figure out like the the right combination of pr people to talk to in this case i mean that's not what all reporting is all about obviously but in some cases if you're trying to talk to a famous person that's a a part of the game yeah for sure like what the connection is that's going to get you there um so i got a credential to this event I flew down to LA. It was at this incredibly weird hotel in Pasadena, which was strangely, oddly, appropriately, like a kind of faux Victorian setup. Of course it was. Which was just chance because this is where all of the networks and all of the shows were being trotted out for the entire season that year. But so can it, you imagine Benedict and Martin walking in there and being like classic America? It was Love called <laughs> yeah. It was called the Langham Hotel, which is also the name of a super famous hotel in London that has actually a bunch of like legit Sherlock Holmes connections from back in the day. Like that's where Oh wow. That's where Arthur Conan How Doyle serendipitous. Would, yeah, Arthur Conan Doyle would go stay at the Langham Hotel, the real one in England, and had a very famous dinner with Oscar Wilde there where they like talked shop and basically did that really happen? Yeah, there's this famous, inc- oh. well, famous, famous in the world of Sherlock Holmes, this incident where Arthur Conan Doyle was this kind of young, struggling writer. He'd written one Sherlock Holmes story along with a bunch of other stuff. It was not very successful. Uh, he got invited by the editor of a new American magazine who was over there talent scouting to come to dinner at the Langham Hotel. 
And so they sat him down and the other dinner guest that night was Oscar Wilde. And so that so, never happens. Going to that just never Oscar happens. <laughs> so the upshot of that dinner is that Oscar Wilde was commissioned to write a short novel for this magazine because magazines did that back then. They hired people to write short whole novel. freaking novels. Oh, the heyday. And so that turned out to be Portrait of Dorian Gray. And the same editor commissioned Arthur Conan Doyle to write a Sherlock Holmes story because he was like one of the only people that had actually read the first Sherlock Holmes story. He was like, you know what? That detective character seemed like it might have some legs. Why don't you do another one of those? Um, anyway. That's some meeting. That, that editor. One yeah. of the better I meetings mean, in publishing history, right? Seriously. But can you yes. imagine sitting down and seeing Oscar Wilde at the table? You're like, well, I'm not going to try and be funny for starters. I'll it, tell you what. I bet they were both impeccably dressed. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's kind of funny to think about if you know that the people involved, because there's Oscar Wilde on one side of the table, and then Arthur Conan Doyle, for those who don't know, was kind of like a Victorian bro. Like, <laughs> he was a huge, Which is not how you would describe Oscar is, Wilde. Yeah, my he, brain is breaking. Yeah, he, I mean, he was a big-time cricket player. He played, he played amateur soccer at a competitive level. He was like a, yeah, he was a man's man, you know, and... And so yet, was Oscar Wilde. Yeah, <laughs> in a different like, sense. Mm, we have a yeah. lot of men's men at that table. Um, and so it's just funny to think of the two of them kind of coexisting in the same space and, in fact, getting uh, big-time contracts out of the same meeting. It's pretty interesting. I so, hope they made out. Yeah, that's a fun, fun story to think about. Um, so the Pasadena version of the Langham is basically like a huge, weird American <laughs> oh, parody. Not the too. same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it looks like a... Goddamn birthday cake, you know, the whole hotel is like chintz and ornate stuff all oh over the place. It's, it. it's 85 degrees and the the hotel bar is like a black wooded pub with like a roaring gas fire in the middle of it. It's like, dudes, it is so hot outside. And yet here we are sweating oh, our beyond. faces off. Um, so... Then the pursuit became like actually like a very literal one because I was actually chasing Benedict Cumberbatch around this hotel trying to like physically physically I was I was stalking as much as I could. It was almost like I would have him and then I'd lose him and then I'd have him again and I'd start to maybe make my angle and then he'd be gone. Wait, so you're, wait, no, hold on. You're in a f room with him. You see him physically. This is more like out and about in the hotel because it's a whole, like, there's a lot of milling that goes okay. around in this yeah. event. There's like, there's like, you know, I like, I ran into Christopher Plummer in the men's bathroom. Like, <gasps> I, I love you know, it's like it's that kind of thing where it's like it's like oh, there's that famous person, there's that famous person, and it's whoever's on deck to talk to the press and do their do their moment is also just kind of milling or they're sort of imprisoned there. Actually, is what I get the impression. Like they're all kind of put up there for days on end, and like you're going to do these five press conferences and these nine interviews, and and that's what you do all day. So um, and you're going to get chased by. Yeah, and, like, and then this one little like redheaded man <laughs> is going to is going to stalk you around Poor the hotel. Christopher Plummer is just like stuck in the bathroom. Like, will well, somebody let me out of here? Was, I was in the Sound of Music. It was funny because I walked into the, I walked into the bathroom and there's Christopher Plummer standing there, looking sort of confused, like looking this way and that. And it is a very lavish scene. Like the bathroom has like oh really? It has like an antechamber and like branching corridors and. A, Wait, he's what? Like, he's the like, bathroom is a maze? Yeah, That's a terrible idea. So Christopher Plummer's <laughs> standing there and saying, how do I get to the, how do I get to the men's room? And I was like, well, you're in it. 
And he's like, he's but like, I'm not at the part where yeah. I can <laughs> let loose. Yeah. It feels like yeah. an internal yeah. question. And, and I, was like, I was like, why don't you go left? I think it's to the left. And so I, I helped Christopher Plummer out a little bit. Anyway. You didn't misdirect because that would have yeah, been cruel. Yeah, that would have been bad. How do any of us get to the men's room when you really think about it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, um, I mean, long story short, I wish that I could tell you that I, I managed to buttonhole him and like and get Benedict Cumberbatch mano a mano for like 15 minutes. That didn't happen. No. I, Did you? Yeah. What? Well, I ended up talking to everyone else who was involved in the show um, at a high level, kind of in person, like one-on-one interviews. But I couldn't ever get him pinned down for one or catch up with him. Did you in ever part, even physically get close? Yes, were you like, because we were, well, we were in a press conference together, right? Okay, and Same I, room? Yeah, and so I got as close as I could with the crush of other media, and it was quite a scene. It was like, it it had the feeling of a full-on big-time press conference with lots of, you know, people waving their little, like, handheld recording devices and shouting questions and whatnot. And then they brought it to more of an organized kind of like everyone, you know, raise your hand and you'll be called on. And I managed to get a question. <gasps> you did. Uh, What's the question? Well, What's the question? Well, I asked it. I mean, so so this, this requires a little bit of like, a little bit of dorky setup, which is that the history of actors playing Sherlock Holmes is not an entirely happy one. Like people in the role have often had some sort of weird struggle with it. Like, uh, often because it's it's in many cases it ends up being like the biggest part they ever play yeah or at least like a career defining part in some sense now this might have been more true at an earlier era but like there's a famous uh at the time famous british actor named jeremy brett who had the role in the 80s and it, it never became, heard of him since then it have became we? <laughs> it became sort of entangled with personal problems he was having at the time because it was like he was suddenly a huge celebrity within england because of the successful show um basil rathbone who is the, probably the most famous actor mm-hmm. who played the character you know kind of couldn't stand it and was felt sort of trapped in it after a while like typecast forever because They're of all it. like christopher Plummer in the bathroom yeah exactly christopher Plummer played sherlock holmes twice but <gasps> where Why? uh once for Why? how <laughs> once for an a, a incredibly obscure but actually quite good cbc canadian broadcasting company production and once in a movie, the title of which I forget, but which was made in like the late 60s. Well, he didn't get trapped in Sherlock exactly. Holmes. Well, he did get trapped in a bathroom, but not yeah. in Sherlock he's Holmes. Christopher Plummer. Yeah, he's, a, he's, he's a bit of a different, different category. Yeah. Yes. So um, so I asked Bennett Cumberbatch, I said, you know, this show's a huge hit. Do you ever get worried that like it's going to, you know, dominate or otherwise push aside other work that you want to do? And he kind of he gave kind of an interesting answer saying like he'd actually talked about that with his mom who's a career actress herself and that they delved into this very this sort of like problematic history of the character together as mm. he was working on maybe like the first, first round of the season series. Um, so that was my, that was kind of, I finally got the one question with Benedict after like two years of working toward it. I got one press conference. <laughs> you question. got a question. But, but I also did in the process did manage to get, I, like I said, interviews along the sidelines with the producers, and you know, I got to, to ask Martin Freeman a question. I, you know, all the all the things that I really wanted to put in the book, I got to put in the book. Ultimately, and you got to spend time in the bathroom yeah. with Christopher Plummer. Yeah, right. It and wasn't a loss. Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, it, the book turned into something that I wasn't even quite anticipating when I started it, which was there were a bunch of these kind of adventures involved in reporting it, like driving around frozen fields in the middle of 
you know, nowhere in England trying to find a particular castle or whatever that's been in one of the stories and, um, you know, going to New York to hang out with some of the, you know, old school Sherlock Holmes clubs that we talked about earlier. Um, the, a lot of the book ended up being these kind of stories, like how I got, how I got to this information that, that I ended up weaving into the story. So it, it, in the end, it was, it was, it was not the Benedict Cumberbatch interview that I was hoping for, but in a weird way, it fueled something else, which was this big anecdote that I thought in some ways helped me shed light on some aspects of the, of the phenomenon that I was writing about in ways that I wouldn't have been able to if I'd just gotten like a half hour phoner with him. Yeah. yeah. Which is really totally all I, different. which is what I really wanted, right? Like either like let's, let's get on the phone for 20 minutes or sit down with me for 10 or whatever it is that famous people do. That's not as good a story. Yeah. Well, I thought so. Yeah. I mean, the adventure is such a part of it. And I think it's really sweet to think about you loving Sherlock so much and how that potentially impacted your career. And you became a journalist and a reporter to go out there maybe a little bit because you loved that bit. It is for sure the reason I wanted to become a writer. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, and well then I, it, sorry, I was just going to say, when you look at Death in the West, which is Zach's podcast about, well, there's two seasons, and the first season about this kind of unsolved murder of right. the, in the 1900s in Montana, and then, of course, our infamous D.B. Cooper for right. season two. But both of these are these mysteries that you and the team are kind of tackling, which is a very... I'm going to say Sherlockian as a... Um, Holmesian. <laughs> Sherlockian I, kind of vibe. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, and I think that it's interesting to think about the way these things shape you as a writer or creative person. I mean, the, the experience of reading those stories and novels when I was 12, for sure, was very formative in, you know, both stuff that I'm interested in to this day and just a sort of outlook on creativity and um you know how to how to navigate the world i mean they're 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 interesting stories that they in their original form because there are a lot of it is about just like observation and paying attention to what's around you and being sort of aware of your surroundings and uh and the other people within your surroundings and what they're doing and i think that's a lot of what journalists do when they're yeah. when they're doing their their best work you know you're sort of tuned in to what's going on around you in a way that's abnormal, maybe like noticing what someone's wearing. Yeah, or, paying too much attention. <laughs> yeah, like you know what what is the what is the detail that reveals someone's character if you're writing a story about them, and maybe it's like the kind of tea that they like to drink, or a weird thing that's on the shelf in their house, or uh, the crumb in the corner of their mouth that's clearly from St. Anne's Bakery down the street. <laughs> like that's the kind of thing that you're looking come up with. <laughs> Um, did yeah. you, um, did you ever watch the young Sherlock Holmes movie? Of course. Which I yeah. feel like really haunted my mm. dreams as an adolescent. Fiona, do you know this movie? The young Sherlock Holmes that came out in like 85 Yeah, it was a, it was a mid to late 80s phenomenon. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. This is teen a, drama? Yeah. This is a teen drama and Whoa. I watched it and it highly influenced me. One, to know that you should have people like Sherlock Holmes in your life because he could solve anything with his keen powers of observation. And two to be slightly more terrified of cults. Yeah, that was a traumatizing movie because I saw that sort of like at a, at a younger age than it was intended for because I was like, ooh, cool, Sherlock Holmes. And then I was like, they're killing these girls. This is terrible. <laughs> yeah, and I think it is supposed to be a kid's, a kid's movie. Yeah. But the, I like the, the new Sherlock Holmes with uh, 
the girl, the girl Sherlock Holmes, Enola Holmes. Oh yeah, Enola oh, Holmes is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, those shows are really good. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, really yeah. good. Yeah, I mean that's what I thought was an interest. That's what made the character an interesting thing to write about is a sort of endless reinvention of it over time, which is now what happens to every major character, like every major pop culture character. I mean, perhaps most famously right now in the Marvel movies, Batman. I mean, all these sort of James Bond is another example. All these sort of characters that become tropes of culture. Mm-hmm. The argument I made in the book was basically like Sherlock Holmes is sort of the prototype of that. Like endlessly reinvented, millions of different versions of it, kind of inexhaustibly franchisable in its own way. Um, what? Why do you think he's had such sort of perennial appeal? I mean, it's kind of like James Bond in that you could actually, you could theoretically have that character do anything, right? Like, because his job is basically to investigate stuff that no one else can figure out. So you could kind of pose that, you could pose any kind of story in that setup. And you, and you also have this other character, Watson, that provides like the comic relief and yeah, the a foil. little bit of tension in the relationship. So it's a good it, it it's a good sturdy setup for all kinds of adventure stories, I guess. Like I have a theory for it. I think it is because because my version of that is I'm more a Nancy Drew person, but yeah. it's a very similar right. thing, right? It's yeah. this character, it's never ending. There's always, but there's this the superhero route which feels unattainable, right? I can't be Spider Man. There's something about Sherlock Holmes or the Nancy Drew or the Jessica Fletcher. My, respect. My icon. Respect. Respect. Yeah. It's their smarts. All they have, they're not particularly special people. You know, they weren't bitten by something radioactive. You don't have to be in the best shape. You could be any age, any, and come from anywhere. It's really just about your keen powers of observation, thinking critically, and being smart. And I feel like there's something to that that makes people feel like, I could do that if I just really put my mind to it. And then you feel invested in that character because yeah. it could be anybody. Anybody could be Sherlock Holmes. And you almost constantly try to be in lockstep with him and you never are quite. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, yes. it's like the Glass Onion movies are basically, sorry, Knives Out. The Knives Out movies are basically like a, another version of this same formula where it's like this oh. hype, this hyper observer is dropped into a situation and you get to see the story from the outside and then you get to see it from their point of view, the person who figured it all out and you see a story behind the story. Do you think Benedict read the book? I would 100% guarantee that he did not. No! Oh, I, I didn't know did. where you were going there. I believe he did. I would 100% guarantee that he did. Benedict. Let me text him. Yeah. yeah. Let's find out. <laughs> if we could get a blurb from him on the next paperback edition, I think that would make a big difference. Great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gauntlet thrown. Yeah. I think it's time. Oh, it is time. So. <laughs> so, hold on. This is the official so, wrap up. <clears throat> but we're not wrapping up, listeners. Stay with us. Uh, thank you again to Zach Dundas for joining us today. We really appreciate it, Zach. Thank you. You can follow Zach at, at Zach Dundas on Instagram and X, X. I pretty much quit. Hey, Forget Graham. that. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah. Uh, and that's it from We Can't Print This for today. You can see more information about all our episodes at wecanprintthis.com and you can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at We Can't Print This. Tell all your friends and find us on Patreon 
forward slash we can print this. Thank you to our producer, Miranda Schaefer, and to Dave Depper for our intro music. This podcast was recorded at the Writer's Block in Portland, Oregon. And the biggest of thanks of all to really our collective work wife, Rachel Ritchie, for being the little glue that held all of us together. Absolutely. She I mean, I, I wouldn't have gotten through writing the book without Rachel because we were co-editors at the time and she had to, you had to pick up a lot of slack. She probably yeah. still was. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> She'll get a blank look in her eye when my name is mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are a writer with a great behind the story story, please do get in touch. Uh, we can print this at gmail.com. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed Elementary, it. my dear Dundas. Thanks, guys. <laughs>